and welcome to another edition of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison, and before we start, a special shout-out to new Patreon supporter, Michael Gove, who just started backing the show on the brand new £100 million tier, as well as a T-shirt, a Don't Blame May I Vote to Remain mug, and a lovely tote bag. The Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Patreon username Vine underscore hubby, gets to place his exciting Get Ready for Brexit advert at the beginning and end of the podcast, It's a Snip. Uh, not really, of course, but if you got a Get Ready for Brexit advert before this podcast, or maybe last week's podcast, then A, join the club, and B, please accept our apologies. HM Government is spamming all podcasts with their possibly illegal promise that we're leaving the EU on the 31st of October, and we can't turn them off without turning off all the ads in that category. But if the government wants to fund Remain through this ingenious secret back channel, we're not going to complain about it. The proceeds will be spent on, yes, undermining Brexit. Details Woo. to come. Thank you, Michael. It's all down to you. Now... Joining us this week is the CEO of Best for Britain, just coming off a triumphant Lib Dem conference, Naomi Smith. How are you, Naomi? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. You're also the stage star of the front of The Guardian and the FT with your placard. Photo-bombing Gina. But it's quite funny because the placard that I grabbed at that particular point said they misled the Queen. And I am obviously quite a staunch Republican and got into trouble (laughs) recently for doing a press release that was a bit sort of tut-tut the Queen for agreeing with Bojo. So (laughs) They misled the Queen. Who cares, she said. Hmm, no queen. Um, the, the, being momentarily serious, some uh, listeners did think that a protest outside the Supreme Court might look like Remainers are pressurising the court to reach a, a particular... The quasi-quartang argument. But, I mean, it was quite a modest and a quiet... Well, I mean, I think the listeners are wrong um, <laughs> that think that, uh, not least because it wasn't about Brexit. We didn't make it about Brexit. There were no stop Brexit signs. There were no anti-Brexit signs. There were no EU flags. It wasn't about that at all. Uh, all the messaging was defend our democracy, um, don't silence our MPs, reopen Parliament. The Queen was misled. Mm. And everyone was asked to for it to be a silent protest and to just be there in their numbers um, as the legal teams were arriving and as the judges themselves were arriving and, of course, the cameras were there um that only got momentarily broken when gina arrived and the crowd went mad mm. um, yeah, whooping and cheering and 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 Excellent. you know she really is their their queen um so uh yeah if when i don't know when this is going out but if it's going out before friday um i would encourage listeners to come along if they can on friday morning which is when we're expecting the judgment right. um, that may not happen but we're, we're expecting it as of as of now to be friday and so to have even more numbers that sort of between 8 a.m 8 30 a.m outside the supreme court which is just by parliament square uh, and we'll obviously at best britain be providing all the placards and you just need to turn up but respectfully and silently and not trying to intimidate anybody coming or going from the court and uh without berets and EU flags and things like that. Do not make it about Brexit. Make it about defending democracy. Mm -hmm. In other news, it was a week of dreams come true for excitable young Brexit follower Ian Dunn for (laughs) politics.co.uk. It began with the Prime Minister comparing himself to the Incredible Hulk and then swiftly turning into the Invisible Man. Hello, Ian. Are you all hulked out? It's it's fucking bullshit. (laughs) It is is actually killing me. Because there's no... You can't win, right? So, like, twice I've seen... In the papers, people go, oh, it's like um, Thanos, his arch enemy. <laughs> and of course, if you say Thanos is not the arch enemy of the Hulk, yeah. that's the leader, you ignorant fools, then yeah. you look much like I have just done, like a complete bellend. <laughs> but if you don't say it, you'll just be eaten up by the frustration of all the fucking wrong that you were just yeah. surrounded by. So I've been, I've, I've been struggling. But was it wise of Boris Johnson to connect Brexit with the story of a, a meddlesome man who takes part in a dangerous experiment, which leaves him wandering around alone, <laughs> consumed with rage and smashing everything around him, having totally forgotten why he did it in the first place? No, it was n- not not good advice. I suspect he doesn't really understand the continuity of, of the Hulk. If I'm honest, I've discussed the idea that you know that, you've, that, that we have a prime minister who doesn't understand their Marvel law. But I, I did think it was odd that he cited the seventies TV Hulk. Uh-huh. It's that really sad story of a lonely man with a ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems to be Britain's future there. Did they? Did Daily Mail readers not know about modern Professor Hulk with his specs and his chilled attitude and his kale smoothies? Yeah, yeah. He's more of... really like 1990s era Peter David Ryan. Yeah, shut up, Hulk. Ian. <laughs> um, okay, so that's enough Marvel <laughs> Comics for now. 
If you're holding Sorry, out, listeners. If you're holding out for superheroes, special guest this week has come hot from a contest of champions at the Supreme Court. Jolian Mom is a QC and the director of the Good Law Project, which brings cases that move the law in positive directions. The project's crowdfunded Miller case led to the meaningful votes that have so far kept us in the EU. It forced the Electoral Commission to reopen its investigation into the illegal actions of vote leave. It established in a law that we can unilaterally revoke Article 50, should we so decide, and now it's fighting Boris Johnson's prorogation in Parliament. Hello, Jolly Mom. Welcome to Romaniacs. How are you doing? I'm I'm all right. Till the adrenaline runs out, I'm 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 there. Yeah, what I'm are we all gonna myself. do when this ends? We're just gonna collapse like deflated souffles, aren't we? I like your optimism. <laughs> this is gonna end. <laughs> We're gonna die of old age. Happily so. So how have your days in court been? Paint is paint is a beautiful picture. So um I wake up at about three. <laughs> Standard. <laughs> Look at all of the uh the, the charm in my inbox. Um do a few media interviews. Um, court is court is quite fun actually because I'm listening to the submissions that the barristers are making. Um, I'm watching uh, what's happening on Twitter. Um, I'm adding some some narrative, you know, right from the right from the front lines. Um, there's been quite a lot of fun interplay. Uh, so when I was uh, this afternoon, I um, was on camera constantly, and I could see people. Um, chatting about what I was doing, and you know, it's tempting to respond. Uh, they, don't, they don't do like bunny ears behind you and things like that. <laughs> they may have done. Just for just for clarity, I mean, it is it is a mashup of two cases, isn't it? The the two the Scottish case and the English case have been conflated. Can't you give us you know the man in the pub, i.e., me? Give us the man in the pub summary of exactly what's happening here. So, um, what this case is really about is whether the government has um, a good motive for proroguing. Um, and the difficulty the government has is that it, it doesn't. Um, uh, the evidence shows um, that uh, the government was drawing up sort of um, barriers of defence against a court action that they knew was coming. So, uh, I mean, basically the government prepared... Um, uh, uh, there's a memo from Nikki da Costa... There's the uh, now famous girly swap memo from Boris Johnson. And that looks for all the world like window dressing, an attempt to obscure um, the Prime Minister's real motives for prorogation. And the backstory to this is absolutely fascinating. So all of this stuff got dumped on us um, at about 11 o'clock in the evening, mm -hmm. uh, the day before the hearing, the first hearing, was due to begin. Um, and, you know, we expected an ambush from government because that's how they roll. But we didn't expect it to come quite so late. And then I heard from a very good source um, that the government had been trying really hard to find a civil servant to sign a witness statement saying that these reasons in this Nikki da Costa memo uh, and the reasons in Boris Johnson's handwritten note were the real reasons for the prorogation. And the government lawyers, um, sweetly, uh, had thought that it would be no difficulty at all getting someone to sign a statement saying these were the real reasons. But when they put the statement in front of the people, they wanted to sign it. And they were like, yeah, maybe not because we'll go to prison because we'll be perjuring ourselves. <laughs> so that's the story. Mm. Um, and of course, uh, you then have that um, humble address uh, that Dominic Grieve launched in the House of Commons. Uh, and the chat in the Commons, um, I mean, you read all on Hansard, but it was of... Um, the real planning for the prorogation being done not using official government email but using um, Signal, WhatsApp, private email addresses on burner phones. Mm. Um, and the so the prorogation all being um, cooked up uh, off stage uh, and then this um, extraordinary piece of window dressing. Uh, and so what we heard today was um, the court, the Supreme Court, being invited to get stuck into whether those reasons were the real reasons. Right. And do we think, I mean, we're recording sort of end of Wednesday. No, I mean, was just saying he thinks Friday for, for a judgment. What The timetabling on this, can the Supreme Court simply extend the next index until it's satisfied it's seen everything? Or No. So you get given a chance to put in your evidence um, the reasons why the government were unable to find anyone 
um, to put in a witness statement or an affidavit, um, i.e. Uh, the person of, who puts in that statement. Um, Let's call them the be... patsy. Let's call them the patsy for now. <laughs> the, just the, for... The, the, so the patsy gets cross-examined, right? Okay. Um, that's the problem. So um, we were encouraging Boris Johnson to give an affidavit. He, after all, is the decision maker. Um, but unsurprisingly, um, he... Uh, did not want to be subject to um, the sort of scrutiny that prime ministers used to get from journalists, uh, but can yeah. now only get inside a courtroom. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so that, that has hung heavy around the government's neck all the way through this process. So instead, they're running this really, really argument, ugly argument called justiciability. And the justiciability argument is this. With whatever motive and for whatever period, the prime minister can um, suspend parliament uh, notwithstanding that Parliament doesn't get a say in whether it gets suspended. And despite all of that, the courts can do nothing about it. And if you just stop to think what the consequence of that argument is, it's that, um, in essence, our parliamentary democracy is is hollowed out to a nothing. The government can suspend Parliament at will, uh, and there are very good reasons um, to think that um, if this prorogation is ruled lawful, there will be another one, Mm. Um, on the 19th Mm. or 20th of October. Mm. So um, that's such an ugly proposition for the government to have to put uh, that, um, you know, uh, you can see all of the Supreme Court uh, judges really uncomfortable with it. Mm. Mm. We're going to return to this later in the show, but one thing before we we do that. Is the Supreme Court able to draw an inference from a refusal to provide evidence, much as if I were to, I don't know, go and rob a bank and then attempt to plead the, or fail, fail to give an account to myself on my arrest? Is anything that you do not say, uh, maybe, uh, you know, when you're given the opportunity, liable to be a basis for an inference of guilt in this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's now the law in criminal cases that if you uh, don't say something, a court can draw inferences from it. And, of course, this isn't a criminal case um, yet. Uh, (laughs) It's only a civil case, um, which means that the government only... Well, we only have to discharge the burden of proof on the balance of probability. So if it's it's 50% likely uh, Mm. that the government had a bad reason, um, that's that's enough. Mm. Um, And, you know, the case law is pretty clear. Um, The government's expected to provide a proper explanation, and if it doesn't, um, the court can draw adverse inferences from the government's failure. Very, very interesting. We're going to return to it in more detail later in the show, as well as looking at the Liberal Democrat Conference. Does going broke for revoke make electoral sense? And our critics right to say that it would be undemocratic if they were to do it. And meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn announces he's going to tour the old material again, remaining neutral in any future Brexit <laughs> referendums. <laughs> oh, Jeremy Corbyn. All that after Naomi with a couple of reminders. It's your last chance to get tickets for our Democalypse 2019 show at 9pm on Monday the 23rd of September with special guest Mark Gatiss at the Leicester Square Theatre. Andrew will be hosting with Ros Taylor and Alex Andreo completing the panel and if things go according to imaginary schedule we might even be talking about the final Supreme Court judgment on prorogation. Get your tickets now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Patreon backers, of course, get a discount, so check your inboxes. And if you're already going to the sold-out 7pm show with Ian, Ingrid, Dorian and guest James O'Brien, why not come to part two as well? It's a different show with a different take on events. And if you show your stubs for both shows, you'll get a free Ultra Remainer mug from the merch stand. What could be better? That's leicestersquaretheatre.com for this Monday, 23rd of September. Get yours before Boris Johnson prorogues it. There's a very good reason to come to the second show, actually, which is that during the interval, the entire politics of the country could change could be in <laughs> half an hour, so it could be totally different. Anyway, as is now customary, let's start the podcast with a section we've come to call Oh God, What Now? Your recap of the latest awfulness. The first publicity for David Cameron's book came out with the shock reveal that Johnson and Gove were a pair of liars. Johnson went to Luxembourg supposedly to continue negotiations. Instead, he got chased away by a little girl and her puppy dog and refused to stand alongside Luxembourg PM Xavier Bettel, I hope I'm saying that right, who stood there doing, what are you going to do, jazz hands, at the empty clap lectern. And then Jeremy Corbyn surprised the nation by reiterating the same neutral policy on Brexit he's held for the past two years. Ian, let's start with Johnson in Luxembourg. These things are really about the optics, and Johnson looked both haunted and hunted. And also knackered, all three. Um, mm. And particularly as Laura Kunzberg on BBC News, he looked really ragged. He wasn't even making a show of trying to answer questions. Is the wear and tear showing, do you think? 
Fucking hell. I think it started showing after like three days in the job. Well, three days after Parliament got yeah. back, right? And like, all that dude language got, mm, went immediately yeah, and no it just got broken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember like they used to put those pictures when Tony Blair left Downing Street and they're like, look how much he's aged in 10 years of Prime Minister. Like, Boris yeah. Johnson has aged at least that much. Yes. And it's been like two weeks they had to face Parliament. So when he, even when he did the Facebook video, do you know he did a the Facebook, Facebook video? Live, got, yeah. yeah. And I was looking at it being like, Really? And you guys okayed this? You, mm. they, he looked like me like when I have to wake up for like a flight at 5.30 in the morning. He just looked completely broken. And he continues to look at I me. Mean, today we had the incident in the hospital with, you know, a guy yeah. shouting at him. And like those moments, he's really not dealing with them very well. So we go back to just put aside all of the content, all of the lie, all of that stuff. As a presentational proposition, which after all was supposed to be the core argument yeah. for why he would make a good leader... He's just not very good at it. And he seems, in a way that's quite um, unhelpful when you're a politician, quite affected mm-hmm. by the manner in which he is being treated by others. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good place to be when you're <laughs> prime minister, because when you're prime minister, lots of people are going to treat you like shit. Well, it was interesting. The hospital thing was interesting because he clearly, feeling very on the back foot, very knackered, says to the guy, there's no press here. You can hear the cameras snapping in the background yeah. and the guy in the hospital says, they're over there, they're filming you right now. That psychologically, I thought was fascinating because obviously we all go around, you know, you can't believe a single word he says, he lies, he lies, he lies. I would just urge you, if you haven't seen that video clip, to yeah. look at it because he says... There's no press, press here. here. He turns to he the camera directly at the camera. And you're just like, yeah. that is next level. Like, if I thought Theresa <laughs> May <laughs> was that, a bad that, that's line. That's rewriting like, gaslighting. Like, that's just like... Maybe yeah. it's some kind of like the city and the city thing where you, there's one city there and there's the other one that you're not supposed to see. You know, that kind of... Uh, like, Naomi's looking at me blankly here. It was a major BBC drama. Come on. The, um, <laughs> when? This year. This year. The, um, the, the business, the invisible prime minister business which the Brexit press went all out to portray as an ambush. It wasn't really an ambush, was it? Because the the British contingent said, we want to move this with just a couple of minutes' notice. Naomi, is that what happened? Or are we... Because we were fed at the line that, 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 you know, Johnson had been set up here. Well, uh, um, no, he hadn't been set up. (laughs) And we've seen today... Um, really good, strong stuff from um, Barnier saying, can he just stop pretending? Can everyone just stop pretending that there is any real negotiation happening here? It isn't. They're not acting in good faith. They're not negotiating properly with us. We haven't been shown decent things. So no, you know, this is just more of this awful Cummings trope about, oh, it's all the EU's fault, they're dreadful, they're awful, we're the sensible, reasonable people and they're not being good to us. It's just nonsense. You can actually, um, you can actually tell this, um, even if you close your ears to all of the stuff you, we're getting from the media, and that we're not really in a possession, position to, to second guess. You can tell it if you look at what has to happen in the uh, 12 days between the 19th of October and the 31st of October. Um, so in the UK, uh, Parliament has to um, approve any deal. 19th of Saturday, by the way, so you're probably starting on the 21st. Hmm. Parliament has to approve the deal. Then the House of Lords, um, which we know can't be guillotined, gets up to five days mm-hmm. to debate it. There has to be um, the withdrawal agreement bill, bill. Yeah. implementing the withdrawal agreement passed, uh, and even the um, almost pathologically restrained Institute for Government use all this um, uh, language about political flashpoints and controversial and complex. You read the report. Um, so enormously complicated legislation, which Parliament hasn't even seen yet. So all of that stuff has to happen um, in the UK alone. Mm. And then it has to be approved in Europe as well. So um, the European Parliament, um, which uh, understandably considers itself to have an important role. Uh, It's given that role by the European Constitution. It has to um, uh, debate, it has to approve the withdrawal agreement, and then the uh, European Council has to approve the withdrawal agreement. And um, uh, the notion that all of that stuff can happen in in 12 days um, is, is, you know, it's, it's just, it's laughable. So even if you ignore everything else... Um, you can tell that there is no way on earth that we are leaving on the 31st of October 
with a deal. And now let me do the prequel to that, which is in those two weeks before that moment, i.e. the two weeks after he does the Conservative Party conference. He's not willing to reveal anything before that because they'll fucking eat him alive. And when you get up to that summit, they think that they they apparently have some sort of deal, which we we get the general outlines of. They refuse to show it, but it's clearly made up of a a stormant lock on anything that comes in. Um, combined sort of agricultural, so sanitary and phytosanitary standards across all of Ireland, and delocalized customs checks. Now, that stuff is the very beginning of the beginning of a negotiation that mm-hmm. you would have. I mean, none of those ideas would be taken, even if you delocalize customs checks. In other mm-hmm. words, take them away from the border. You're still going against what we promised, which was no checks in Ireland yep. at all. Then, of course, you have to come up with some sort of trusted trade stream, some sort of way of exempting most traffic. Yep. Because if you don't, all of that infrastructure will be absolutely massive. Mm. And then there's the Stormont Lock stuff, which they are not going to accept on the basis of it. So even in that two-week period, you don't even have... I mean, you would need, you know, two years to start off from that point to negotiate anything there. So you put those two two-week sections together and you're like, this guy is not going for a deal. And even if he was, he wouldn't get one. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that's the, the the kind of massive, massive detail that we sort of instinctively know anyway, which is it's just it's flannel. There is no intent to get a deal here. But it's fantastic. It's fascinating to see just in it, it, the the scale of the of the requirement and how unattainable it is mm. in that period. Joe, I mean, are you aware of what the EU thinks about the Supreme Court case? Oh, I say the EU EU figures what they think about the Supreme Court case about prorogation. I mean, did, is it is what's happening here colouring their approach? Um, I mean, I don't... uh, I was speaking to EU figures uh, around the Article 50 case and I was speaking to very senior EU figures uh, around the time of the two motions that Joanna Cherry put before Parliament because I wanted to know um, what they would think about the notion of us revoking in order to start another process. Uh, And what I was putting to them was, look, you guys um, also want uh, a meaningful, sustainable mandate from the United Kingdom to either remain in the EU or leave. So although this is going to be uncomfortable for you, it should be what you want. But in relation to prorogation, I haven't spoken to them, but I'm pretty sure I know what they're thinking. What they're thinking is, um, here is uh, a democracy that is in profound turmoil, um, where the rate of decline of uh, the structure of that democracy is increasing. So, you know, if three months ago any of us had sat here and and, and told listeners um, that Parliament would be suspended because it was an inconvenience to the Prime Minister, we would have been laughed at. Oh. Um, if any of us had sat here um, one month ago and said Boris Johnson is going to say repeatedly and explicitly he will not do what the law requires, we would have been laughed at. And those two absolutely key features of our constitutional landscape, the sovereignty of Parliament uh, and adherence to the rule of law, have fallen away. So if you're sitting in um, uh, on the other side of the, the channel and you're asking yourself, um, how much uh, do we want this amongst us? You know, you've got to be asking some questions. Yeah, I mean, well, there's been a lot of sort of opinion pieces and sort of op-eds floating around and it seems to be an increasing incidence of voices from the continent saying we're at the end of this now mm. well, we had um uh, there, there was um the irish ambassadors at the liberal democrat conference this weekend and obviously lots of people were kind of keen to get the pulse of ireland and how much they were you know getting concerned about no deal and prepared to make um concessions um and i think that you know there isn't that it, it isn't totally impossible that uh, the EU are going to be more flexible about the backstop. Then you come down to what the DUP are prepared to do. And there's been some very interesting chatter today about that and various different public affairs agencies putting out numbers, who they the numbers by, by party grouping and independent as to how many of each they think will go for a deal or... or, or vote against it um, and putting the DUP in in the box of backing a deal um, that, that includes some kind of all-island uh, backstop. And I don't think that that is right and it's not what we're hearing. Um, the last I heard, DUP were broadly happy with animal checks but nothing else. And they're really beginning to focus their minds around the fact that, you know, a border poll is going to be increasingly likely. And do they want to be a minority party in an all-Ireland 
yeah. Ireland or a majority party in Northern Ireland. So I don't think that they're there. Uh, so I think it's going to be pretty difficult for them to get any kind of deal through. Well, this one's going to roll and Still. roll. And I'd be very surprised if we don't have to do an emergency podcast between now and the next one. Or maybe just deal with it in the live show on Monday night and put that out. Who knows? Who knows? Should we talk about the about Labour's new old position? Corbyn coming out saying that he will say at conference uh, the same four conditions for a, quote, sensible Brexit and will stay neutral in a, in a referendum campaign, just like last time. Um, I mean, Ian, what sort of a defeat is this for the kind of Watson, Thornbury, McDonald, make Labour remain thing? Or is it? I mean, I mean it's, it's it, yeah, it, it is a defeat for them because it's not what they wanted. I mean, I, but to be honest, I don't really see people's concern about it, really. Um, he was, I mean, he, I'm going to be fair to him on something. I just think it's, logically completely consistent to say i'm going to negotiate another deal and then i'm going to put the deal for a referendum one of them is you limit the damage of what can happen it's pretty obvious i think he's going to go for norway plus sort of thing although his language needs a lot of decoding then you say then you'll have a referendum so you can get rid of that outcome completely if you want the trouble is that on the doorstep that comes across as i will negotiate a deal and then i'll campaign against it if you're a remain person that sounds all wibbly wobbly so he clearly wants to keep his options open. He won't... This fucking irritating thing with Labour where they just won't say it. It's mm. basically like policy making by absence. So he sits there going, well, I couldn't possibly say it. You're like, so, wait, so you're going to be neutral? He's like, oh, I'm not saying that. But also I'm not saying that I'll be remaining. It's like leave. criminology, man. Get your head in it's the headspace. It's You've like got criminology to... if they never sent a fax, basically. Because there's <laughs> nothing there. It's just a complete absence and you have to conclude by virtue of the absence. However, I, I don't see what there is to be so... It's not like he's such a wonderful... Um, he'd be good if it's something he believes in. And in a campaign, I think he can then be useful. Where it's not something he believes in, we've seen how he does it. Useless. We saw it three years ago. Useless. Exactly. So it's just like, well, what is it that we've lost? And now I would actually go a step further and say, if David Cameron had been neutral in 2016, I think the chances of Brexit having happened in the first place would be significantly diminished. Yeah. Because many of the voters, it was a protest vote against, I'm going to give David Cameron a bloody nose. On that basis, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, I would predict, is not going to be a tremendously popular prime minister. If he's doing this thing, it's because he is a prime minister. And it might actually be pretty good to have him a little bit more distant mm. while the rest of Labour can do what it wants. So while people have been very upset by this, I have to say, I'm a bit surprised by why. They're giving us what we want. We've got the offer. That's yeah. where we needed Labour to be. So let's just take it and do the thing. Naomi, where does this leave Remain alliance type things? Where does that leave the whole world of building a united front? Um, well, the Remain Alliance continues and has done since the start, you know, broadly working around Labour. Um, so it doesn't have much of an impact. Um, I think where what you mean, what your question is, is more around tactical voting. Hmm. Because the Remain Alliance is where the candidates stand down for one another. Um, and Labour were never going to come into that fold. So it was going to be up to applied Lib Dems and Greens to decide, OK, well, Let's let's do non-aggression packs if Labour won't join us in the seats where only Labour can beat a hard Brexit, a Conservative or Brexit Party candidate. I think your question is more, can we persuade voters to vote tactically yeah. in favour of Labour if Labour's position is still very, very you know, shaky on, on the issue of Remain? Um, and that will be a, a slightly taller order, but you know that's up to the the campaigns like ours doing tactical voting advice to say that the alternative is so 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 much worse here that that you're really going to have to hold your nose and and vote Labour in this particular seat, even if you are an ultra Remainer who doesn't believe uh, in Jeremy Corbyn's uh, seven out of ten support mm. for the EU. Joe, any thoughts on this? Do you think it's kind of it, is it a is it a change in the weather or is it something that's already priced in? Um, I'm pretty sympathetic to what Ian said, actually. Uh, I mean, for me, the enormous damage um, that Jeremy Corbyn's ambivalence towards Europe has done um, has been done in the last few years mm. in the sense that there has not been a politically potent voice um, arguing for the benefits of the European mm. project. Um, that's been... My frustration, um, the opposition with a small O um, to what uh, the Tories and most of the media have been telling us about Brexit has been absent. If that opposition with a small O had been present, 
And it can only be present if it comes from the opposition with a big O. We would be in a very, very different place now. The opinion polls would look very, very different. Um, but unless um, uh, the uh, big O opposition um, chooses to make should we remain a politically salient question, um, you know, you're doing really, really well to keep your head above water. We have done well. We have kept our head above water. But um, frankly, the position that Jeremy Corbyn takes in the event that there is a referendum, I don't think it much matters. Mm-hmm. Now, let's have Gone in 60 Seconds, our Radio 4-style panel game, where one of the team <laughs> has just a single minute to take on a favoured Leaver's argument and pull it to bits for the amusement of the bored and restless mob. Naomi, it's your turn, and your Leaver argument is... The EU is expanding to become a super state, so we have to leave. Is it? Is that what's happening? You've got 60 seconds. Go. Well, it's worth remembering that the EU can only legislate in areas outlined in treaties. And this means that the EU cannot gain new powers unless we agree to change in, to a change in the treaties. A number of policy areas, such as defence, taxation, etc., require unanimity voting. So we can use our veto to opt out of things. And we have done and we do. Um, the fact that defence policy requires unanimity means that we can absolutely veto an EU army. Uh, and rumours that Juncker wants to remove vetoes is absolute nonsense, as removal of vetoes is a transfer of powers from state level to EU level and would require unanimity again. So we can re- veto that as well. Um, the UK has the most opt-outs in the EU, clearly highlighting um, how there is scope to, forego, uh, to forge our own path. Things like the Euro, the Schengen, etc. we've all opted out of. Uh, David Cameron is, um, in his February 2016 renegotiation, secured a commitment to exempt Britain from ever closer union. And importantly, Articles 4 and 5 of the Treaty on the European Union make it perfectly clear that sovereignty is to be respected. That's a minute and four seconds. I will let you have that because you were speaking at at an intelligible pace rather than me gabbling. So I'll get that. It was very good. Thank you. A minute and four seconds. Right, so let's have a quick look at the Lib Dems uh, and their conference, and specifically the Revoke announcement. Mm. Uh, Naomi, Roz and Dory went down to Bournemouth on Sunday for a quick unplugged live So talk. did you. So yeah, did but I. I wasn't on the stage. I wasn't, you know, part of the... I wasn't part of the... Basking in the sunshine. Yeah, basking in the sunshine. Uh, it was an unplugged live talk with Sarah Wallace, an MP. She looked like a woman who'd escaped from jail. She was absolutely delighted to be there. Um, there was a surprise unveiling of Sam Jima as a Lib Dem MP. Chucker Aminia basically saying go back to your constituencies and prepare for government, and Joe Swinson unveiling the party's new policy of revoking Article 50 outright. <laughs> Naomi, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you first because you're lib, because you're a Lib Dem. Um there are people out there who are saying pulling a straight revoke will be undemocratic. Uh, but if if the Lib Dems want enough seats to be able to enact this, it would by its nature be democratic, wouldn't it? You can't enact it without some form of democratic mandate and the seats. Yeah, look, I mean I think it would have been a a better policy for them when they were at 8% in the polls uh-huh. than where they are now. 20, you know, if we'd done this two and a half years ago, I think it would have had more of an impact. Um, we've we've been talking about the lack of clarity of the Labour position when you're door knocking uh, and trying to sell yourselves to Remain voters or anti-Brexit voters, soft levers even. Um, so I, th- I think that clarity is just useful and, and good politics for them. Um, it'll probably strengthen the Lib Dems um, and meaning that they are negotiating with others in any kind of coalition or confidence and supply arrangement that happens after a general election from a position of strength. Um, but I would say that, you know, time really is running out um, in terms of, of the parties working together better. Um, and we really do need greater cohesiveness between the Remain parties. So I think um, Labour and Lib Dem sort of tearing chunks out of each other over this is unhelpful. Um, and the Scots Nats have been a bit involved in that as well over the last few days. So that's a bit depressing. Uh, but yeah, it is worth remembering that uh, according to all of Best Britain data so far, uh, any general election happening anytime soon is not, sadly, sorry to tell, the Liberal Democrats going to lead to them uh, having enough seats to form a majority. So they will be in some kind of negotiation position. And I suppose if you are an outlier with a, a revoked position, then the very obvious compromise is a final say referendum. Yeah. But the, the kind of counter argument is if you're making a promise, if you're writing a cheque, you know you're never going to have to cash. Why would you write a cheque that is potentially going to people off even people on your own side because there is a kind of a there, there you know there's a sound argument against it that to, to revoke without the same kind of democratic but i don't think i mean look as is so often the case of the liberal democrats they are appalling at communications um they can be very appalling at politics as well i hasten to add but <laughs> i think what they will be trying to say is in the event that they 
do have to cash that check that they are big enough and they do win. They're not saying that they never would have uh, a, a referendum. I think what they're trying to position it as being uh, is saying that this is not a radical position. This is the status quo to revoke and stay with the amazing deal that we've got from the EU that is so much better than the deal that any other country in the EU has secured um, gives us continuity and certainty to sort out a lot of the problems that our country faces, it's a time to be able to pause, take stock, reflect, deal with some of those issues and then potentially, I mean, they're not saying no to ever having another referendum um, on the issue of Europe, but doing it in a much more measured way so that we get out of this constant running down the clock and squeaky bum time and uh, endless cycle of that that we've had over the last year. Ian, what did you think of it, the, 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 the Vogue idea, as a, as a bit of concrete policy from the, from the lectern? I mean, I don't, so I don't support outright revoke, but I, I thought it, would, it made sort of sense for them to do it. I mean, the question, I think they will get more support. I think you'll see a rise in the polls because it's a, it's a simple response. Um, and it's quite useful to have someone on the far end of Remain dragging the debate in that direction, even if you don't necessarily support the proposal. Their question, the question really is, will it get the voters that they need who are overwhelmingly in Tory Lib Dem marginals over? Will those to- basically fundamentally Remainers who have voted Tory before, will they be attracted to it or will they think it's quite extreme? And that, that's the bit where it can be a I mean, bit funny. But I think, so you're right to say that the majority of Lib Dem gains are likely to come from Lib Dem Tory marginals, but they'll come by them squeezing the Labour vote. Mm, you know, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, 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 they yeah. need to squeeze Labour and Green vote away to nothing. That's how the Lib Dems yeah. win in Tory seats. It's not by winning over moderate Tories. I mean, there is, of course, an extent you know, to, to an extent that happens. But... I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of sniping about it, isn't there? Um, because I think both Labour and the Tories recognise um, that in purely nakedly political terms, it's quite a good policy. And a lot of that sniping is coming from the same people who claim that the 2017 election. Um, was a mandate to leave. Mm. So, you know, I find it a little unattractive for those people now to be saying that there would be a democratic absence um, in mandate in the uh, unlikely world that the Lib Dems won enough seats to to form a government. But I have a slightly difficult, uh, a slightly different problem with it, which is this. Um, What we need now is not the appearance um, of a mandate to remain what we actually need to have um, is uh, something which is sustainable, um, something which is meaningful, something which, uh, and 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 that looks like um, something which emerges from a conversation and not from more yelling at one another. Mm. Um, so you know. I would make the same criticism actually about a referendum. A referendum isn't going to do any of those things. A referendum is going to um, drive the country further apart. Um, and at the end of it, there will be um, some triumphant uh, victors and there will be some very aggrieved losers. Um, and I don't think actually that um, revocation is any worse than that. But I'm not particularly thrilled by either of those ways of resolving where we are. Um, what I really want to see is a is um, something that's been... (laughs) Look, there'll be plenty of those, mate. Don't worry. Um, What I really want to see is um, a a conversation. We we really do need to have um, a process um, whereby um, we arrive at something that we can all live with. Because, you know, the point that's made pretty powerfully is, well, if the Lib Dems revoke, uh, if they win... Uh, a general election, uh, then the Tories will re-notify when they next win a general mm-hmm. election. And, and, and where's this all going to leave us? We need to have something more sustainable. Well, the, 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 I suppose the, the argument would be that revocation by whomever, it's not going to be a Lib Dem majority government, but if it were to happen, it would not be the omega, it would not be the end point. It would be followed immediately by, now we need to commence this conversation, be it in a citizen's jury, yeah. be it in some other form of exploring. Well, that, that's not present in any of the, in any of the Lib Dem material. No, uh, right. and, and, and it's also, you know, it's also um, not part of their pitch, right? They, they've got a very simple pitch, we're going to revoke, uh, then it'll be all over, except it, except it won't be. And, and even if it was, unless it's embedded into their um, offer to the electorate, the electorate um, won't believe it, and they're right not to believe it because they won't get it because in that unlikely world, um, that uh, conversation would, would just be forgotten about. There is something a little bit um, a bit shouty about the Lib Dems at the moment. I quite, I quite like Jo Sinso. I thought her speech was fine. It was pretty good. 
Um, she's clearly the manner in which she has brought MPs over suggests that she's been very good at having the conversations with mm. them before, you know, through WhatsApp groups, etc. So she's clearly a, a home that MPs feel comfortable with from a wide range of places. There's, there's this trace element of shouting. I understand why she needs to go on stage and say that Corbyn and Johnson are equally unsuited to the role of prime minister. And should it be that? I totally get it why that makes sense. And I'm not even frankly saying that that's wrong as, as a proposition because I don't think it is. I think it's a true statement. However, like today, you know, going on about the betrayal of Remain by Corbyn, I sort of thought like, I mean, he is mm. offering a referendum, which is mm. what Remain has been asking yeah. for for a long time. And this word betrayal, which is yeah. like, can we please, just please stop using that that word? Is it, there's this sort of jagged edge to some of her communication, which is just a bit too aggressive to people that I'd frankly rather she was working with. So I was quite excited by the whole, like, no more Mrs. Nice liberal routine and the fact that she's like a basic lizard, lizard brain level. She's projecting strength and certainty mm. when Johnson is projecting weakness and cowardice and Corbyn is projecting kind of aloof ditheringness. So that basic kind of, you know, alpha female, you know, whatever level of interaction, it's quite impressive. But you're right. Some of the, it's yeah. not just that the language is abrasive. It's also old. It feels mm. like part of the last three years has been mm. driving us up the wall. Yeah. And mm. and they and Ian's totally right. They've got to be working together, and they had begun to. Um, and and obviously with the No Deal stuff, that was the first example of them all actually working together. And Corbyn had the meeting, and they all went along, mm. and they all seemed to, you know, unite around that common enemy. And we just needed to build on that and do more of that, um, rather than this sort of constant mudslinging, which turns off voters. But also, it's just it's not going to be what we need. I mean, they, if 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 they're not prepared to show contrition to one another and work together, you're looking at a very 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 solid majority for a, a you know a, a set of MPs who don't just want the worst kind of Brexit. These are the kinds of people that want to dismantle the welfare state, sell off the NHS, roll back on decarbonisation. You know this is so much bigger than Brexit. Yeah, and hobble democracy. Uh, right, so you can't and, and, and whether yeah. you're a liberal or a socialist, the people that you're fighting. Are going to do some horrendous things. Or to a one nation you Tory, for that matter. A one nation Tory. There's a little enthusiasm for like undoing democracy on Indeed. the on the, uh, on the on the kind of moderate Tory side, either. While we're on Lib Dems, we started our new companion podcast on the House with two Conservative MPs, Sam Gima and Philip Lee. Now it's hosted by two Liberal Democrat MPs, Sam Gima and Philip Lee. <laughs> the plan was to have a pint after Parliament. <laughs> Every week, they're going to have a pint with friends and friendly rivals, but there's no parliament anymore, so now it's a prorogation pint. Uh, there's a new episode every Friday, so make sure... Your entire podcast has changed, basically. Yeah, it's not yeah. to do with parliament, like, not to do with the Tories. Yeah, it's like, we're going to have two Tories talking after the after the week in parliament, and I've got two Lib Dems in, the, in limbo, in the phantom zone that is prorogation. But it's still a really good, it's a really good listen, and, and they, they don't hold back. They do not hold back. Here, from the current episode, Here's Sam and Philip on the fallout from the Conservatives' night of the shortcomings. Where is this going? I mean, can Johnson sort of claw it back, as it were? I think a lot of damage has been done. I think the fact that 31 colleagues are standing down, are we honestly saying, with the membership of the Conservative Party as it now is, I mean, the membership of my former association has virtually doubled in the last 12 months. Now, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Marie, I don't think we've been seeing One Nation conservatism in action in the last 12 months. What is it that's been paramount in people's minds? It's been delivering Brexit. So, in effect, my association's complexion, its makeup, has fundamentally changed. And there are people in my former association who, who are thinking of following me. So, in those 31, if that's the same and that's writ large across the country, those 31 conservatives are going to be replaced by people who aren't One Nation Conservatives. That's the, lo- the logic of it. Let's get back to our special guest, Julian Morm, director of the Good Law Project that's fighting prorogation in the Supreme Court right now while you're listening, unless you're listening in six weeks' time. It's a massively complex case. Joe, are there important aspects of it that, that aren't getting through to the public that we're missing? Because even at the level of your kind of instant kind of BBC explainer, it's quite dense. Are there important bits that people should be focusing on? I mean, at its heart, it's a really, really simple case. Um, And it's about whether um, it's right that Boris Johnson, who derived his mandate from a self-selecting constituency of 160,000 people, can suspend Parliament 
which of course derives its mandate from an electorate of 46 million people, um, for whatever period he wants and with whatever motive. And I think the question was put to um, Boris Johnson through his advocate yesterday. Is it your case that if Boris Johnson was paid some stonking great bribe to suspend Parliament, it would still be, as lawyers say, non-justiciable? It would be an area into which the courts could not go? And I'm pretty sure that the answer came back, yes, that is our case. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's an absolutely remarkable um, proposition. Uh, and um, genuinely, there would be nothing left of um, parliamentary sovereignty, because um, how does parliament function right in a world in which it can be prorogued at any moment? Parliament doesn't need to get any notice at all of a prorogation. So... Um, let's assume Parliament is in the process of passing legislation um, against the government's will. The government just suspends Parliament. It can do that um, the very next day, and all legislation, um, uh, save for that specially carried over, um, falls away on prorogation. So Parliament's ability to legislate is absolutely crippled, and this, of course, in a world in which it's even allowed to sit. Um, And... um, you know, for me, it's a real um, watershed, this, right? Because the government is um, testing the courage of the Supreme Court. At the same time as um, the you know, front page of the Times, judges warned to be neutral um, today, uh, and Boris Johnson is talking about leaving on the 31st of October come what may, despite the fact that the law may well compel... Um, us to stay beyond the 31st of October. He's being absolutely adamant we'll leave on the 31st of October. Um, Despite the fact that Dominic Cummings is briefing the Sunday papers, and I have it from other sources as well, that there will be another prorogation. Against all of that background, um, this case uh, is coming to the court, and I think the government is testing the court. It's testing the court's um, propensity to protect um, the very foundation stones of our democracy. And I... Um, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I litigate these cases, right? Because I can't conceive of a world in which we lose. And I mean that literally. I cannot imagine what um, constitutional life in the United Kingdom will be like if we lose. We will be worse than Turkey. Even in Turkey, they have a parliament that's allowed to sit. Mm. Mm. So we're essentially, we're looking at a once in several centuries kind of face-off between does the executive have absolute power over the judiciary and the legislature, or, or doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and even the optimists, even the people who say, well, look, um, fundamentally he's a, a, a one-nation Tory, look at what he was like during the mayoralty, um, it's just this Brexit thing that you know he's got to get it done uh, and then he'll go back to being um, the person he always was. Um, they've got to answer this question, haven't they? Um, How do you feel as a prime minister um, when you've had a little taste of um, power uninterrupted by anybody else, where um, if parliament becomes an inconvenience to you, you can suspend it. Um, If uh, the rule of law becomes an inconvenience to you, you can ignore it. Um, How does that lead to you making good decisions. Because, um, you know, at the heart of the work that I do is a really, really boring idea. And it's that um, governance matters. And in particular, that we need to have all of these institutions of government Mm -hmm. functioning, working um, together, um, powerfully arguing with one another, um, there needs to be all of these creative tensions everywhere um, in the makeup of government. And if any of that is missing, um, things will get very, very bad very, very quickly. And I do not understand how, um, you know, of course, um, all of us here, all of your listeners too, will think that if they were prime minister, um, they would govern in a beneficent way. But um, you know, we all recognise absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, we. I mean, a, a, absolutely. So, and it, it's there's a sort of you can make that point as well in this way. You can say, um, 
yeah, but how good will my decisions be if they're not constantly being challenged and scrutinized? Mm. Well, I, I actually hate it when people challenge and scrutinize. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. So but, do I. Yeah. But I know problems that I've found on this podcast <laughs> is people constantly raise objections to what I'm saying, and it's just, it's dreadful. Yeah, it's but so. you're a man who's enjoying prorogation, right? Because you don't have those long tweet firsts. <laughs> It's fucking brilliant. And I frankly object to the efforts that you have made to stop me from getting some peace and quiet. Ian, Ian is catching up on his comic books. You didn't contribute to my Well, there is an even more basic question, which is, you know, it might look peachy keen while, you know, Johnson and Cummings can uh, run down the clock to the, the no deal they so obviously want. But once this president is set, what happens if Jeremy Corbyn is prime minister in two years' time, knowing full well that parliament can simply be suspended whenever it suits him and a person who has his own interesting ideas about the about the way society should work the way the law should work and has a mass party behind him which also has very strong ideas about the way mps should behave so um every day i've been at the supreme court i've been going out and i've been speaking to the leave means leave people for about um 20 minutes uh and as they get um crosser as happened today didn't happen yesterday i see out of the corner of my eye the policeman sort of moving closer and closer and closer to stop this imbecile namely me from getting punched in the face (laughs) Uh, i've never felt i haven't felt physically threatened um but um the one argument that um has purchase with them is that precise point i say you might well think that it's a really good idea um for Boris Johnson to be able to put Parliament out of the way so that he can deliver the Brexit that you believe um, the country voted for in um, June 2016. But I assume you're not a Jeremy Corbyn fan, right? And um, so far, I've yet to meet a Lexeter amongst the the, the leave me probably tomorrow. But um, so far, they've all been um, uh, vigorous opponents of Corbyn. And when I say to them, how do you feel about the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn being able to suspend Parliament um, because he doesn't uh, like um, what they're stopping him from doing. Um, you know, that, that that argument really cuts through. Try it out with Joe Swinson tomorrow. Hmm. See if you get a different answer. Yeah. Just... We, had, I mean, we, I we, we had a piece on site recently um, by, actually, one of the authors is Christina Pegg, a friend of the show, who did this thing as, as they put out this, this question to people. They flipped around... The question in the beginning. So one of them was to prorogue in order to get uh, to revoke Article 50. The other one was to prorogue for no deal. Mm. And by flipping it around, they found that the number of leavers who supported prorogation fell if, first of all, they had to answer the question for an outcome that they didn't, didn't like. like yeah. That mm. basic idea behind constitutional governments, being mm. able to say to people, mm. well, you may not like it when this happens to this guy over here that you don't like, but would you also like the protection of, for instance, human yeah. rights or whatever, mm. is key to explaining this stuff. And I, I mean, sorry to drag it back to the, the revoke thing that we talked about earlier but when we in the Brecon by election we saw a convicted fraudster didn't do that badly actually mm. and leavers were very happy to back even a criminal because they wanted that so much and and I think you can have that on the other side I, I think that's what we're seeing now is that that people will forgive and forgo a lot to get this weird outcome that they're so desperately mm. obsessed with but but when you when you frame things to something else it doesn't you don't want me to say any of no that. no it was a very worrying poll that we talked about on the show before and when people were asked you know would you like uh, a, a strong man who'll break the, a strong man who'll break the rules to get it done yeah. and quite a lot of British we were, were conditioned to imagine that British people simply don't go over this kind of thing turns out quite a large number of us would be perfectly happy yeah. with somebody who breaks the rules to get yeah. it done whatever it is yeah. I mean I, I speak to a lot of MPs from all political parties, uh, not the DUP, everyone else. And um, there is a lot of noise at the moment about uh, an emergency government again. Uh, And so today um, I commissioned legal advice from a leading public lawyer uh, about whether or not we would actually need to have um, a vote under the Fixed Term Parliament Act to replace Boris Johnson, uh, a, a course of action which carries some risks, or whether we could replace him um, without a vote under the FTPA. And I'm expecting the answer to be, well, we actually don't need a vote under the FTPA. But um, the point is this. You might well find um, that we have an emergency government. You might well find that there are two goes at it. So one go um, giving Jeremy Corbyn um, first shot at replacing the Prime Minister, uh, and then after that um, fails, as I imagine 
um, it will. Another go with uh, a, a figure who um, is uh, uh, more, palatable. More, more palatable across the political spectrum. Um, so once that um, replacement uh, prime minister is installed in this um, hypothetical, but I think not completely unreal world, um, that person could use um, the power to prorogue parliament to suspend parliament and could, for example, um, exercise um, his or her unilateral power to revoke. And, you know, you've got to wonder um, what uh, those leave means leave people um, Mm. would think about that possibility. Mm. You know what it is, Ian? It's the Infinity Stones. Instant power. You can't make me stop talking about the Hulk comics and then bring up the Infinity Stones again. That's not right. One last thing for Joe before Ian combusts. You said you can't conceive of a world where the executive basically has the power to do whatever it wants. Um, presumably, if we if, if if we win the case, our side wins the case, Parliament reassembles, business continues. You would imagine. What happens if we don't win the case? Are we are we looking at a descent into the necessity of, a, of of kind of remaking the British Constitution at some point? What are we looking at in the medium term and the long term? Well, it's you know it's a pretty terrifying prospect. I mean, when I said I couldn't conceive of it, that wasn't a, a rhetorical use yeah. of language. That was a literal use of language. I don't know what the answer to your question is. I can't imagine what it looks like because um, uh, what I understand from sources that have proved very accurate in the past is that there will be another prorogation if we lose. It's perfectly possible to imagine there will be another prorogation even if we win. Um, I think this story ends... Um, in a you know that my best guess um is that whether we lose or we win um when parliament comes back for 5 days from the 14th to the 19th even if it doesn't form a new government it will enact emergency legislation that hand or that take control over the power to prorogue away from the prime minister and put it into the hands of Parliament. So it would be like going into party uh, party conference recess. Mm. Um, It could happen, but only if Parliament was content for it to happen, Mm. and only for a such period as Parliament prescribed. It is mad. This is... um, Well, obviously, this is going to condition the next few podcasts, I think. We keep saying... How you know this is so crazy? We never thought it could get this crazy. And then it just gets crazier. And it gets crazier and crazier. And that's the end of this show which means the Brexit time capsule container of everything we will need or miss if we ever leave the EU. It's a reverse Pandora's box, unlike the legal one that's been opened by prorogation. Joe Mom, as our guest, you get to add something to the collection. Anything but freedom of movement, Erasmus or the Fast Passport queue, because they've been put in there several times. What's going in? Oh, I, I want to get back to um, a world where, you know, we fought uh, in the fountains over football matches um i think that's immeasurably preferable to a world in which we have to suffer um lawyers on um morning you know on breakfast tv um (laughs) let's do this uh the the traditional english way get back to a a reassuring triviality there was a great uh, after 9 11 the onion did a great graphic of all the stupid, fluffy summer stories that had been happening before 9-11 happened. And it was like Britney Spears had a snake around her neck and there was something about shark attacks and, you know, a, a, you know, a kangaroo on TV. And the, and the headline of the graphic was, a shattered nation longs to care about stupid bullshit once again. Mm, and it kind of feels like the same thing. Bring back the stupid bullshit. <laughs> Joe, thanks for coming on the show. This week's foreign language clip is in what else? Luxembourgish from listener Martin Schaus. Ich ging leer, wann ich behaupte, gave the Boris ein Visit zu Lützebüch, hat mich nicht gut amüsiert. Und aber hat mal leer, der ging dann EU bleiben. That means I'd be lying if I said I didn't take joy from Boris's Luxembourg visit. But in the end, we'd still much prefer you to stay in the EU. Quality sentiments there. Please send your foreign language clips to info at romaniacs.com. Keep them short and concise. And ideally, don't record them in the middle of a knot of people shouting bollocks to Brexit. And that's the show. Thank you to Naomi and Ian. Thanks, Joe Morm, for coming in. My pleasure. Um, it's time for our theme tune by the legendary Corner Shop. Demon is a monster. You can get a free download of it at ampleplay.co.uk. Don't forget those tickets for Democrats 2019 at leicestersquaretheatre.com. 
Here's our theme tune and here are our thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to James Carey, Chris Davis, Rachel Barker, Edward Lamb, Delia Hollowell, Alice Mariscotti Wyatt, Toria Richards, Trevor Hart, James, maybe even the band, uh, Anthony Weatherly, Mark Hazelwood, and Jamie Bryan. And thank you from me to Roy Langmaid, Gavin Wyman, Charles Winnie, Kevy Von Trevi, Stefan Barber, Rupert Potier, Veronica Kinsberg, Rob Palfrey, Andy T, Terry Blackwood, Nick Gendler, and Simon Fairbairn. And from me, it's thanks to Peter Thorpe, Jim McGrath, Peter Higgins, a digital farmer, Stephen Schiavone, Lucy Hazpool, Rupert Ross MacDonald, Brad Corsello, Paul Crompton, the Lord of Leisure, who I worship, uh, and Donna Hansen. Romaniacs was presented and produced by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by Matt Kemp. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.